Let's start with the name. Guy Van Swearingen. How's that for gravitas? You want the man who has that name to be as bold and substantial as the moniker itself. And I have to say, when you meet him, you are not disappointed. He's one of the co-founders of a Red Orchid Theater, a director, and maybe above all, an actor seemingly incapable of a false move. I say maybe because he has another job I wouldn't lightly cast aside. For as long as he's been in the theater, he's also been a Chicago firefighter. Not the TV kind, the real deal. I met Guy when he was in a commercial I was directing. I remember the first time I saw him, I was struck by how genuine, imposing, and ultimately funny he was. Later, I got to know him better when he had a prominent role in an independent film I wrote called The Merry Gentleman. The movie, starring and directed by Michael Keaton, was shot in Chicago, and I love Guy in it. He plays a Chicago cop, and again, I'm buying everything he's selling. He strikes that note of down-to-earth Chicago guy in a very true and somewhat unexpected way. He doesn't play the nasally, stereotypical angle that's been beaten into the ground. There's just a toughness to his manner and a sweetness, too. There's also something that I would imagine comes in handy for both firemen and actors, and that's a sense of fearlessness. I can't help thinking that may have been a big part of the attraction between he and his old friend and Red Orchid co-founder, Michael Shannon. If you've ever been to a Red Orchid... You know there's an element of danger to virtually everything they do. Whenever I step into that intimate, almost claustrophobic old town space that they've inhabited for the last 25 years, I know that before it's all over, my head will spin and my heart will race. It's always a thrill ride, and there always seems to be the threat of the whole thing just running off the rails. For my money, it's the most exciting theater in town. And the fact that they've done what they've done so successfully and without compromise for a quarter of a century, artistically speaking... That's a success story that rivals any other in this great city. It's actually kind of heroic, really. So who better to be at the center of it than someone who, when he's not acting or directing, is out fighting fires? Hell, if he didn't have a name like Guy Van Swearingen, we'd have to make it up. I'm Ron Lazaretti, and this is the Hog Butcher Radio So... Guy. I was trying to remember if we first met doing a commercial or if we met on The Married Gentleman. I do remember the commercial. It was a, a spec thing, I think, you were putting together. And we uh, taped that commercial uh, out at the Gary Airport. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in which I think there was only one terminal for the Hooters jet. <laughs> Um, that would go back and forth from the Gary Airport to, I guess, to a Hooters in Las Vegas, maybe, or somewhere. I don't know. Um, but no, that was the, the commercial was before we ever got going on Merry Gentlemen. So. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So were you an actor or a firefighter first? I was an actor first. Um, I was, uh, well, look, I'm born and raised in Chicago, and I grew up on the north side, uh, kind of a, a latchkey kid, you know, without any parental supervision and kind of running all over, sneaking on the uh, L trains and running around Wrigley Field back when you could do that as a kid. Um, I've since parted ways with that team in that park. But um, anyway, on the north side, running around, um, growing up, um, yeah, latchkey kid, and then uh, fell into some 
some of the more darker elements of society, I guess you might say, uh, and uh, got in a lot of trouble as a teenage kid. And uh, I found the theater, uh, or the theater found me. I don't know exactly how, but it seemed to be a place where I fit. And uh, all of this stuff that was raging inside me could find a, a form of expression which, uh, which seemed to fit with my character, I guess. So I was in the theater. I got involved in the theater in high like school. Like high school? Yeah, high yeah. School? My, I, was, uh, I was very fortunate. My sister went to an all-girls Catholic school on the north side, uh, St. Scholastica. I think it's now a charter school or something. Anyway, she went to the school, and uh, they needed guys for the plays. Uh, and so I started, uh, I started doing plays there, and I was seeing a girl, and we were doing, like, musical reviews at in the basement of St. Jerome's Church or something, you know, but for somehow it all made me feel like I was getting something out that I needed to get out. And uh, That's a wonderful thing. It's amazing. I like to say, to be quite frank about it, uh, that the theater kind of saved my life and my work in the theater is repaying that debt of gratitude you know, because I was in a lot of trouble. Huh. What yeah. kind of trouble? Uh, trouble, trouble. Um, Arrested, you know, uh, incarcerated. Uh, like robbery kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not, you know, nothing to be proud of. or um, Stealing that, eight-track players out of my car? Yeah, you might, I might have gotten your car. <laughs> I, I, I might have gotten more than your car. But, um, and, you know. So how did, it, how did it turn you around? I mean, just because it gave you an outlet, it gave you an alternative to satisfy whatever it was that was boiling inside of you? Yeah, I don't know if we ever, as human beings, ever feel as if we fit uh, wholly in this world, in this experience of life or whatever. And as an angsty teenage kid um, looking for any sort of thrill, I guess, you know, um, the theater actually kind of saved my life and gave me a place to express those feelings and those emotions and those things that uh, kind of rule a teenager's life you know they're raging with hormones and everything else and and uh i was in a lot of trouble getting in a lot of fights uh gangs uh criminal activity whatever drugs everything and uh and the theater gave me a place to feel safe and express myself so when did your schooling come did you go to college did you i did did, Uh, did you study theater in college well i dropped out of high school and uh, not that I would recommend that to anybody who might be listening to this, but uh, it worked for me. And uh, I was, uh, I was, I don't know, I think it was in my second year of high school. It was really going nowhere, and I was running away from home, and I was on the streets pretty much most of the time, 15-year-old kid, you know. And, uh, and so finally I, went, I, I got my act together. I went back, and I got my GED, and I graduated ahead of my class. Uh, before the rest of my class got out. And then I started going to uh, community college, the city colleges of Chicago, and then, uh, and then I went transferred to Northeastern Illinois University. And from there, then I was on a full ride for talent scholarship in the theater department there. So my schooling was paid for, it was nice. And uh, when I was at Northeastern at the time, my mom suggested that I go sign up for the Chicago Fire Department. Uh, and she used a, a a phrase that still impresses me to this day, 
It's sort of like an Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of thing or something. She said, why don't you go and sign up? It's not like they're going to hire you tomorrow. And I said, because I had a, a head full of big dreams, you know, and I was going places, man. And, uh, but I went and I signed up, you know, just, uh, just to see what would happen. And I signed up and sure enough, it took about two years. And as I said, I transferred over to Loyola and was a theater major at Loyola University when I got the call from the fire department. Now, mind you, I'd been in college for about five years at this time. And I, uh, and I wasn't getting, a, <laughs> getting too far. Me and organized sort of learning don't jive so well, but me and experiential learning do really well. So um, I'm street smart in that respect, you know. Um, anyway, and uh, the next thing I know, I'm at Loyola University and the fire department rings my bell and says, hey, come on. I was going through this horrible breakup with this girl, you know. I was like sleeping in a car. I was trying to claim my own right as a human being or something, you know. It was horrible. I remember, you know, uh, tr uh, walking through uh, through the park with a cello and a, and a bag of love letters or something pathetic from some sad <laughs> yeah it, it is it's laughable it's it's a uh, cello <laughs> and some bag of love letters or what have you that wow were written between me and this girl at the time anyway uh i wind up living in my car i get the call from the fire department my my school career is going nowhere i see and i say uh well fuck it i'm gonna go be a fireman and uh, sure enough i wasn't sure what to expect but i got down there to the to the intake area or whatever, and there were like two, three hundred of us standing around, and you know, guys from all walks in the city here in Chicago. And uh, all of a sudden, this guy comes out with this thick Chicago accent, and he's like, You guys are the cream of the crop. You're the best of the best. You're all going to be firemen. Now, some of you are going to start right away. The rest of you, don't worry. We'll see you in January. And they saw me in February, but. I became a Chicago fireman. My sense is that you're an, must be an adrenaline freak, you know, between firefighting and throwing yourself out there on a stage. Yeah, they, they both kind of. I mean, obviously, firefighting is a much more, <laughs> in its own way, dangerous, you know, thing. It's a life or death situation. Well, there have been studies. Uh, maybe a Harvard study or UCLA study. I can't remember now. Years ago, I heard it, and uh, uh, they said that uh, the adrenaline surge of a firefighter and an actor going out on stage for the first time on an opening night is quite similar. I'll bet. Yeah. 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 Um, but for me, am I an adrenaline junkie? Look, my mom, you know, had me in the early '60s, back when she was smoking Pall Malls and drinking martinis every day. You know, I'm sure my my adrenaline was pumping from the womb on. I don't know, you know, what, what goes on here? You know, it's, we're all chemically based creatures, right? I mean, those chemicals coursing through your system can have an effect. It may be, uh, uh, but am I an adrenaline junkie? No, I just, uh, I just enjoy life and what it's giving us. You know? At some point, I want to double back and talk about how the theater began and, and all that, but you've been the, you know, one of the founders, the artistic director in the past, you've directed, you've performed, and how do you make that work with life as a firefighter? Yeah, well, I have a full career as an actor, you know, along with, you know, being part of the group here at the Red Orchid, you know, and with that full career as an actor, I've had to say no on many times, you know, to opportunities, whether just to audition for possibilities, you know, um, knowing that I couldn't fulfill a commitment should they need me or want me to be part of it, should I be so honored, you know. Um, 
And then with the theater, you know, that's the whole reason, that's part of the reason why, it's a good segue into how the theater got started because um, it's difficult to be an actor and have the career of a firefighter with the demands of both of those schedules. And so uh, it was fortuitous to sort of venture into my own and out onto my, into, out into my own and start a theater so that I could have a theater that would be obliging to a fireman's schedule, you know. Um, and so, you know... Um, you created a situation where you could essentially build your own Sunday a little Manifested bit. a destiny in that respect, yes. Right, and yeah. put yourself in charge of it. You're not just a guy who's in a theater. You're a guy who's basically part of running a theater. That's right. So yeah. it's your ball game. In a way, yeah. It was, it, in a big way, uh, starting out, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's far beyond my reach now. It's, there's a lot of people involved, and it's grown, and it's... Uh, it's been a lot of fun to see that happen, too. 25 years. 25 years. My sense is that you and Michael Shannon became fast friends and co-founded this theater, you know, back in the early days. Was it the two of you guys? Was it, it, do I have that right? Well, there were some others involved, but uh, <clears throat> Michael and I did become fast friends. We met taking a, actually taking a, a scene study class together, working with Jane Brody at the time. And... Uh, and we met and became kind of fast friends through that experience, that class. And then uh, a little while later, I decided, uh, along with another friend of mine back from the Northeastern Illinois University uh, theater days, decided that uh, we wanted to do this play, uh, The Connection by Jack Gelber. And uh, I really wa we really wanted to do it. We didn't know how we were gonna do it. I looked around town trying to find a place to rent to do this play, and he was going to direct it. And uh, and he did start out as the director, um, although halfway through the process he switched hats and became the musical director. And Richard Katowski came in from uh, the Mary Archie Theater and directed uh, directed us to opening. But uh, anyway, um, but Michael was always there, uh, kind of present and around when we were putting this all together. And we found the space down here and built it out. And um, over the course of about six months, rehearsed a play, built a theater, and opened it, you know. Um, and with all of the trials and tribulations of that, with, you know, I had like a cast rebellion and uh, people walking out, drawing lines in the sand, and, you know, uh, it, was, it, was, it was a pretty riotous experience just getting that first play up at, here at Red Orchid. And, uh, and Michael was part of it, you know, he uh, helped run the box office, he, you know, helped uh, with the poster design and uh, and yeah and uh, and he actually did the next offering at the theater. Uh, See, there, there's like that spirit which is I always find enviable that put a show on in the barn kind of thing, which seems like this was born out of. It. And then I was reading a thing. Uh, it was in the Tribune, I think, right when you guys were opening Trader, and uh, it was just a thing that that Michael had said when he was talking about how this, the, I think it was an article about something else, but he was talking about the genesis of the play, and he said, Guy really wanted to do Ibsen's An Enemy of the People, and I thought it'd be cool to do a modern version of it that maybe it'd be a little more accessible, and I thought Brett would do a hell of a job writing it, so I said, if you write it, I'll direct it, and that's what happened. And I thought, that just sounds like, I know that's probably in its own way an oversimplification. No, it hits the nail right on the head, Ron, it really does. Um, <laughs> It I mean, was, it, it, it just seems great that to be able to have that kind of, you do this, I'll do that, my mom will make the costumes. It's synergy. Yeah. And when synergy is happening, when a force of energy is passing through, uh, it's nice to take notice of it and, be, and 
get hold of it and be part of it, you know. Well, it seems like you've designed the place to some extent for that kind of synergy, to, to have the, to, the to, people to do that. To try to facilitate it, for yeah. sure. Yeah, now, do we always cotton on to what energy is pulsing around us and, you know, through us or what have you as artists? Not always, but um, do we always work to find and, and, and embrace those insightful moments? Absolutely, you know. I... Now, that doesn't sound like the talk of a fireman, but there you have it. <laughs> I, um, I'll say, to you, first, I'm always a little bit nervous when I go to a play at the Red Orchid. I'm always... As you should be. I'm always a little uncertain what I've gotten myself in for. And, you know... For but it's like, it's, well, it's because it's like uh, pulling yourself up to the table and there's a, a bunch of food and there's covers on top of everything and you're, you're, you're afraid that there might be something that you might offend your host in, by not wanting to eat or something. <laughs> yeah. That's what you get when you come to Red Orchid, That's, right? Well, I think the first time, the first Red Orchid presentation I saw was Mr. Colbert. <laughs> and... Uh, German existentialism. Yes, yes, right. Right. And and it was wildly entertaining, also wildly unpredictable, and it was the kind of th I mean, as I recall, after I don't know how long a dead guy falls out of an armoire and at some point everybody ends up naked, I think at the end, and and crying. Naked and crying. As you right. do when you're in an existential German play. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, what the hell? It just had this kind of like, and, and it was the first time I'd seen Michael too, who came across as truly dangerous, you know, particularly in that production. But I just remember thinking, holy mackerel, there's, they're definitely a provocative group of people here. Uh, and it seems to me that to some degree, I'll jump years later, I went to see The Nether, which you were in, and how would you describe that production? It's about, about virtual... It's about virtual worlds, uh, creating a, a, a man who's created a virtual world with which to sort of um, um, to, to try to temper his proclivities, uh, which are not... Um, Save, they're unsavory proclivities. Well, yeah. Uh, um, you know, uh, a place where he can experience his virtual world without having to act out... Um, things that are not acceptable in our regular worlds. And I remember stopping to say hello to you after the presentation, and and I've seen you after plays like that before, and you were very tapped. And I think it was late in the run, and it was a very kind of demanding role in the sense that it was just like, you know, kicked up a lot of disturbing kinds of things. Mm -hmm. and. You were just, you, you said, man, this one really, yeah, it, it gets to me a little bit, and you're, it was exhausting. And I remember, I thought the same thing when you said that as I did when I saw Mr. Colbert, which is, hey, this is amazing, but how many times do they do this a week? And how do you, how do you find that, the, the energy and the, the bandwidth for whatever darkness you've allowed yourself, you know, to explore, how do you get through that, um, through an entire run of a play? Well, I think, you, how do you find it? Well, you're going, do you, you know what I mean? It's like, how, how, where do you find the, 
intestinal fortitude to be able to throw it all out there like that and then do it again, you know, after the matinee, do it again at night or whatever. Yeah, I'm just wondering, what do you have to summon to be able to make that work over a period of weeks? Well, Ron, you know I like you, and this interview has been going very well so far, but this is the first bullshit question I've got. <laughs> and all I can tell you is I have no answer for you. It just We just do it. I mean, it just... What kind of a toll does it take? I mean, like something like the if nether. If you're invested, you're it, it takes its toll. Uh, it takes its psychological toll, and it takes its physical toll on you. Um, you know, a lot of people were getting sick when we were doing... Uh, trader here that you came to see and uh trader was very demanding as well you know um where i'm basically losing my effing mind in the middle of a town council meeting every performance you know um i don't know it just comes i it just comes and uh and i guess when it stops coming i guess that's when you stop doing it maybe i don't know and yet you're dr i think in a way you're drawn to the kind of work that make those demands mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, well, I'm, all, I'm always drawn to something that uh, uh, maybe I find offensive or maybe I find uh, the, as, as something that I haven't tried yet, you know, um, and whether or not I, I can uh, stretch myself as an artist and, and embrace uh, the things that I've been afraid maybe to look at, you know. Um, right. Yeah. So, so yeah, those, those are the ways in which I look for those challenges. And those challenges, yeah, usually there is some sort of physical demand, I think. Um, I think actors don't use their bodies enough. Um, although I, I know there was some, I, I know some theater history, and I know that Edwin Booth was very physical, and uh, I'm sorry, uh, Ed, uh, John Wilkes Booth was very physical, and Edwin Booth was very, you know, mannered, you know, and they didn't necessarily care for uh, John Wilkes Booth's physical, physicalisms in the theater or whatever. Uh, is that a word? <laughs> I just said it, so I'll make it a word. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, there, I, I think that uh, to be tested physically, to test your metal, your mental and your physical metal, ment I, yeah. my words are escaping. Yeah, yeah. Metal yeah. Is, uh, is sort of what I look for, yeah, when looking for what's next, I guess. I, I heard... I don't know, is there a quote or a slogan that you guys have had in the past? I heard this line, and I don't know even who to attribute it to, that basically said the theater is about doing theater that comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comforted. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I, I love that. Um, that's from um, Artaud, I think, in, in the theater of cruelty um, is where that, I believe that originates from. And, uh, and I like to think that we do do some of that uh, to the best of our ability uh, make have people feel calm look when we built the theater we had these seats these ass breaker seats I called them you know because it was so uncomfortable to sit there and watch because there was no padding really or the padding had been worn out of them um, and I said we got to take care of the people who are coming to see this show let's put them in some nice cushioned seats so we were trying to comfort them and and afflict them at the same time <laughs> so um, anyway so you are in the same space that you've always been in, correct? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, do you ever think, oh, we need a bigger space, or, you know, with greater success comes greater demand, so we have to rise to that demand, or is there something about that space that, 
are you staying there because you have to or because you want to? Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of people... It's a very intimate space, right? Not, yeah, it is. It's very intimate, and the experience is very sort of immediate, you know, uh, in that intimacy. And uh, you'd hate to lose anything uh, like that should, uh, should you move somewhere bigger or something. But uh, no, and it's also kind of a special space to us, you know. Um, and I get it. Uh, this is a world of change, and nothing stays... You know, everything changes. One day, none of this will be here. I get all that, you know. Um, but uh, but any sort of move or change or growth or whatever would have to be um, sort of guarded with that in mind of what that intimacy and maintaining that sort of experience for the people who come see us. I mean, wouldn't it be like, wouldn't it be fucking awesome if you could just right now today go walk into you know the the, car- the cave club or whatever that was where the Beatles played in Berlin oh, the cavern what, club yeah the right. cavern club you know wouldn't that be awesome if you could go walk in there today and have that experience of what those people got back then, right you know and uh, look I, we did plays here when nobody was you know coming and Michael Shannon was in those too you know um, and so it's interesting. Um, to see people discover us for the first time and really latch on to what the experience is here. At the well, it seems, for my money, the intimacy of that place is part of the allure. I mean, especially given, you know, like I said, not every, well, I think there's an element of danger in most everything that you guys do. Sure. And there's something about not having the safe distance that you have in many other theaters to more viscerally experience that danger, right, you know? Right. It, it's sort of right in front of you. It's almost in your lap, depending yeah. on where you're sitting. Um, and sometimes that's, uh, uh, in, in, our, in our history, sometimes we've been criticized for that, you know, and sometimes we've been applauded for it, you know. Uh, What's the criticism? I, I've actually had somebody say, you know, this is a play that would probably do better if it was a little, a little further away um, in, in their, in their uh, remarks on having seen it, you know. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. I won't divulge which one, but um, but that's been said, um, <laughs> as well as you know. Which play you mean? As well as how thrilling the experience is to be so close. So. Well, okay, so I just saw you in Traitor, which is basically an adaptation of Enemy of the People. That's right. You know, many people strain to make connections to what's going on in the world with the selections that are made, that one in particular. And I just read a, a piece in the New York Times, I think it was, yep. about various productions of Enemy of the People, uh, various adaptations of it. Um, and basically trying to talk about maybe why that play, why now? I, I have two questions, really. And I pray to God neither one of them is bullshit because... There's only been one so far, Ron. <laughs> And I, I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> no, the, the questions I have are, was that play chosen to make a statement about the current time? Or, or really, a bigger question is, how, how conscious are you of, of making selections of plays in terms of just of trying to align with what's going on, what's in the headlines, what's in the... Is that really a goal when you choose stuff to try to find stuff that would that that plays directly to the news of the day? Well, when you're assaulted, when somebody assaults you, you become a victim of some order, you know. And uh, 
It's hard. It's, it's hard to walk down the damn street without feeling as if you're not constantly being assaulted by a society of ignorance. Now, how that carries on and, and, and the choices we make here at Red Orchid, you know, uh, or at least for my own, I always am sort of focused on what the body politic is saying, you know, and, uh, and how, we're pers uh, how we're participating in that dialogue or whatever, in that conversation. Um, because I'd like to think that it's more than just two people talking. I'd like to think we could all talk um, and listen to each other. But that's part of what the choice in doing that play was. It's about a lot of people talking and not necessarily listening to each other. And I'm, I'm kind of beyond uh, words to express um, how I feel about that in our culture as a whole. And I don't care what side of the fence you're on, you know, how far left or right you want to be. Someone's got to get to the middle, or we're all fucked. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, and I, so I'm not going to stand there and tell you that I hate this person and love that person, or love that person and hate that other person, because then I'm just feeding into all that bullshit, you know. And uh, and I'm not talking about sitting on a fence either, but I'm talking about asking people to really sort of uh, experience each other's experience. So. And the communal aspect of the theater, in a sense, gives you that to, opportunity to bring that, bring people together to make that point. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's it's uh, especially in an ensemble-based theater, which is what a Red Orchid is. We're a group of artists, you know, and we've all got come from all different walks, and we all have our ideas, you know, and it's how we share those ideas and champion each other's um, ideas into reality you know into reality for the stage and then just hope that an audience you know can cotton to it you know or appreciates or at least appreciates what's going on you know look a good critic is not always the one who says oh you know uh it's a great show it's a great show all the time you know sometimes it might be not their cup of tea and a good critic will say ah this isn't for me but you know what if you're into this this is really i think they're doing a really an awesome job of doing what this is you know, and you don't find critics doing that anymore. Yeah. I don't. I, I don't think, you know. So. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the other thing about Red Orchid is it, it just seems like you, you guys have been very uncompromising, um, which to me, in a way, makes your success over that period of time even greater. What have you, what have you, what have you had to do to survive 25 years as a as such an uncompromising artistic entity are there any in, did you always do the same amount of plays every year how did you how have you kept the doors open all that time well through a lot of the early years it was sort of a, a, a place where we produced plays when we were inspired to produce plays and so sometimes that inspiration was a little long in coming you know um, because we didn't want to do anything that we didn't believe in or do anything just to do something um, and provide programming just for the sake of providing programming or what have you. Um, and so in the early years, it was slow going, and, and, but it was all very inspired, you know. Um, and I'd like to say all of the work here has always been inspired, and slowly but surely we grew in a way in which we could continue to be inspired as we did more, more work. Um, so... I don't know, did I answer that? Yeah, and critics, okay. Yeah. Do you have a relationship with the critics at all? I try not to. 
<laughs> but have, uh, no, have you had full success there? Or? I, I try to keep it on the square, you know. I'm not one to, like, uh, rub elbows with people just to try to influence, I don't know. Or How much do you think the reviews influence the success of what you guys have done? They've had a lot to do with it over the years, and now, you know, being the size that we are, we've sort of kind of, we're, we're maxing out now on our subscribers, and uh, we've got people who are loyalists, you know, um, so it doesn't have as much of an influence on us as it once did, say, um, but um, I always am uh, anxious for enlightened feedback, you know, um, provided that the source is an enlightening source. So are you still an active firefighter? I am, at least until November. What happens then? I think I'm going to retire. Really? <laughs> I think so, yes. And how will that's, that? That's my plan right now. Uh, you know, there's shows in town, Chicago, Med, Chicago. You've been on Chicago Fire. I was, I was on the pilot actually. Yeah, and uh, later too, no? And I was on a couple of episodes in the first, second year of the, of the run of the thing, yeah. Were you, I'm trying to remember, did you play, what roles did you play? I played a chief, I think, from a suburban fire department uh, whose daughter was getting involved with one of, uh, romantically involved with one of the leads in the uh, Chicago Fire Firehouse. Yes. And uh, they were having sex in a coat room or something at one point, <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> The demographic for the Chicago Fire Show is high school girls, so they want to know who's dating Lady Gaga. I don't know, but I had a lot of fun doing that show, and I think it's a great show for this city, without a doubt. Oh, no question. Yeah. Now, you, you've probably been involved with other shows that have come through the city or films that have shot here. Any particularly memorable experiences in that arena? Well, beyond our own yes. shared experience, mm -hmm. um, which is very memorable. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I've, uh, I've had, you know, great fortune to work with some really interesting people and some really well-known people. Um, um, just recently I filmed a, 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 a science fiction thing that's going to be coming out in August in the summer uh, with the director Rupert Watt from, who was very, uh, I, I felt uh, I had a very nice experience working with him in that project. Uh, and then, uh, and then our experience, of course, in working with uh, people like Michael Keaton and Kelly McDonald and all of them, with, uh, it was uh, it was a, it was sort of a it was a very bonding kind of experience to do that project with you and everybody else who was involved. You know. Yeah. Yeah, because we're kind of like family when it comes to that. Yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, I find that about... It is funny, but this is the thing about human interaction, isn't it? I mean, look, we're, we're traveling along, and sometimes you meet somebody, and you're like, ah, whatever, that guy, you know. And then another time you meet somebody, and you're like, yeah, this guy gets me, and, you know, uh, we're on that path together. We're sharing the same road, you know. And it's kind of, life is funny that way, I think, you know. But I feel like, you know, when those experiences happen, like what we shared, you know, doing uh, Merry Gentlemen or whatever, uh, I think, you know... you appreciate well you know film is certainly like this and i you know i have limited experience in the theater but the experience i have there's that feeling ultimately like you've just gone to camp with everybody yeah. and it's funny because i even noticed this on camp. and i like going to camp i do too <laughs> and, and and i noticed this even doing a commercial shoot but over the course of a week or two or something it's the only job where it's like when it's all over, people are hugging like 
you know, I mean, we made a commercial, I don't, but we're hugging because there's that kind of, you're your own sort of merry band, you know, of people, you're, you're either in your theater space where you're kind of working things through and being very intimate, or you're out in the world in this kind of parallel universe where you are at a place that's been shut down, it's probably three o'clock in the morning, and you get this feeling like you're this traveling circus, right. you know? I right. mean, are you drawn to that kind of... I am, most assuredly, I am. I, uh, look, it, it's, I love it. It's, everybody's working on a common sort of element or, uh, with, a, with, a, with the greater good for this thing, you know, uh, in, in the forefront of their minds as human beings. How often does that happen where people come together to, to work in that way? Now, granted, there's a business side to all of it and everything else, but all, all nonsense aside, I think, you know, um, those shared experiences are what we all live for as human beings, you know. Yeah, and the Mary... Not to be too prophetic about it, but it, it is. There's this, and that's why you do hug after making a commercial or something, you know, or closing a play or uh, uh, at the rap party or whatever, you know, for whatever film, you know. Well, you work on a film. Let me ask, let me turn it around a yeah. little bit. Because you work on a film and then, you know, uh, maybe sound didn't ca- get something that you wanted the way you wanted or you want to throw a wild line in or something. And you hadn't seen the actor since that experience, and then they come, you know, two, three months later when you're in post or whatever, and it's like I miss this guy. You're absolutely right. I mean, uh, well, and depending, and those, on, and those feelings are real, and we can validate those feelings, can't we? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, the married gentleman, the actual shooting of the married gentleman, while it had its difficulties, was actually kind of a wonderful experience. I mean, it was a little weird for me because I don't want to get into that whole story again, but I originally set to direct it, my appendix ruptured, and that was that. Michael Keaton ended up directing it. And, and that was that. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it was just like probably the worst case of bad timing I've ever experienced in my life. But the actual experience, and, and, and I think this is interesting too, because I felt as the writer of that piece, I felt like ultimately I was treated like a playwright which is different than a screenwriter. Mm. You know, you know what it's like in the theater. You know what it's like. I mean, oftentimes when it comes to movies and movies particularly, I would guess, uh, because TV is a little bit writer driven. But in films, you know, you don't always have the writer sitting around. No, I don't think the screenwriter hangs out uh, like, uh, no, like we were fortunate enough to have you. you Well, it was a great experience for Um, me, too. And actually, Michael, I mean, things during the filming were great. The post-production of it was kind of a nightmare. Um, but I found Michael to be very generous during the, you know, the actual making from my standpoint. Yeah, and as an actor working, uh, having Michael Keaton as a first-time director and what have you, it was, I felt he was one of the most generous sort of giving directors that I've been encountered, that I've ever encountered, you know. Um, whether it was, you know, uh, a scene establishing some business to go on in the scene so you don't look like a mope standing in on, on camera somewhere you know he'd give you some business to do and it was very thoughtful of him to be able to come up with different uh and uh d- different different and informed choices uh that spoke to what who your character was uh in terms of making extra business uh, so that you didn't look like a mope on right frame well know. and so when all is said and done, you have this experience, you do this thing, it could be acrimonious, it could be beautiful, but when it's all over, you've got this movie, you know? I wonder, as someone who spends so much time in the theater, the theater is such an ephemeral thing. Mm-hmm. The theater is, you had to be there. 
-hmm. you know um how does that make you feel sometimes as an actor you know like i said when you when you're working on a film you have this piece that is that lives on yeah well let's put it in perspective ron Mm -hmm. we're on a rock floating in something called space traveling at a speed that nobody has any fucking idea exactly how to quantify so when it comes to living on i think we all we all have a lot of notions about that but ultimately we're part of the nothingness of everything and in that i guess i'm saying yeah it's fun to go and watch yourself in a film later on um but it's also fun to think back of of those uh, uh, in terms of the theater experience of what those those were you know those shows that you did you know um but ultimately in the long run people got to get their heads out of their asses (laughs) the feeling that you're watching something that only the people in the room are sharing in that particular way that night. Seems like it has. Yeah, oh no, yeah, music, all of art, all of our experiences, you know. You can't hold on to any of this shit, you know, and yet at the same time it occupies space in our conscious, in our hearts, you know. Does the audience affect the performance? I, you know, my favorite experience in the theater is an audience that's quiet um, in the beginning. And everyone's like, you know, you come backstage after your scene or something, and everyone's like, oh, man, they're awfully quiet, you know. And it, it's so interesting how the psyche automatically tends to think that that's negative in some way, you know. And so my favorite is is the audience that's quiet in the beginning, and then by the end of the show they can't contain themselves, you know, because they've been listening all along, you know. And if you play into that darker side, then they'll be quiet at the end of your experience. So that's my, you know, they do inform what you do, and, and, uh, and it's nice to have them uh, participate. You know. You've often done stuff outside of Red Orchid too, right? That's right. What's that like when you walk into a different kind of a situation than the one that, you're, that you've generally controlled till now? Is that a difficult thing to adapt to? Is it? Uh, it can be. I mean, the energy is different everywhere you go, and I always like to demand a certain kind of experience when I'm, when, look, it's a play. It's not a drag, you know. Uh, and I like to make sure that uh, I know that we're all having a that we're all playing, you know. Um, not that I have control over what other people do by any stretch of my imagination, but uh, I, I do demand that the experience is real and that people aren't just showing up for a job. I demand it from myself, and if I do that with myself, if I throw all of myself and invest all of my being in everything that it is that I do as an artist, then. Uh, then I can demand that others around me participate to that degree as well, you know. Otherwise, the experience is just not worth it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so it's been fun working in other theaters like Steppenwolf or The Goodman and, and having those kinds of experiences in those bigger places, you know. Right. I've, had, I've been fortunate. I've been in a couple of really nice shows in those places. So. Are there, do you have a favorite show or a handful of favorite shows that you participated in, either as a director, as an actor, in whatever capacity? Yeah, well, Victims of Duty, um, which is an assur- uh, uh, from the Theater of the Absurd by Eugene Ionesco. Um, it's probably his most personal play, and I just think it's a fascinating piece of writing and uh, an absurd theater. Uh, that's probably one of my favorites, if not my most favorite play. It's, it's, it's pretty complete in, in a way in which I find the theater sometimes lacks. Um, and then, uh, and then I, I really enjoyed Time of Your Life at Steppenwolf. Uh, 
I enjoyed some Patico here at Red Orchid. Um, and, uh, and so, the, you know, there are, and Kane Mutiny Court Martial here at Red Orchid, there are experiences that are maybe a, a little broader or uh, a little stronger in my memory than others, but uh, I've loved them all. They're like my children, <laughs> little pieces of my soul or whatever, you know, it's fun. Simpatico was another great kind of wild and unsettling kind of show where you think it's going this way and it's kind of taking unpredictable turns. You know, at the time, too, I think people like critics like Chris Jones or whoever tried to make a parallel to the relationship of the characters in the movie to your relationship with like you were in the play with Michael Shannon. Yeah. Um, they tried to make draw parallels between, you know, actually he said, I had a piece of it. He actually said it in a complimentary sense, but he said it's a measure of the guts of both Shannon and Guy Van Swearingen, the underappreciated, I'm going to go back to that, the underappreciated actor. I wonder if you feel underappreciated who splits his time between the off-loop and fighting Chicago fires, even as his longtime, once-inseparable pal splits his time between off-loop and late show with David Letterman, that they are each so willing to confront their own inevitable baggage. Is that what you thought you were doing with that play? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> uh, no, well, look, uh, that's the nice thing about being part of an ensemble is that we have been around and together for a long time, and so it's, it's nice to be able to take certain liberties or to cut past any sort of niceties that you might find that uh, people uh, put on uh, in, in, in encountering each other through a rehearsal process of a play. So um, here in the ensemble, we all kind of know each other's bullshit, and so it's good to sort of get up there and just get to work and, and go at each other, you know. Um, and tell that story, you know. Um, so, uh, and I, I don't ever feel underappreciated. No? No, I mean, uh, I've, my, I'm, I have a very rich existence, uh, and I'm very happy with what's here, you know. Um, and there'll be more. Uh, You're a Chicago guy. That's right. Was there ever any chance of you going anywhere else? You know, New York, Los Angeles, I mean, what's kept you here? And is there, was there ever a time when you thought, I should go try my luck over there? Yeah, I, um, what's kept me here? Um, well, the lake is amazing. Lake Michigan is really an amazing <laughs> yeah. force. Um, and every time I look at it, I, I just, I fall in love all over again with this silly city, you know. Um, the lake is amazing, but what's kept me here? My job, of course. Uh, I'm a duty. I'm a, a, a duty to that, to my existence, you know. And the theater, you know, uh, being part of this theater. Um, and I don't know that uh, I. I really. Uh, I don't know. I'm. I'm. I am a Chicago. I'm born and raised here. I don't know that I fit as like you know somebody who comes to Chicago, gets a career going as an actor and then travels on to LA or to New York or whatever, and, and their career and their horizons continue to broaden or whatever, you know. Um, I think I'm more local in that respect, and I'll go to those places if they need me, you know. I'm not gonna go there because I want them, you know. Right. Yeah. Where do you, moving forward, yeah. especially if you potentially retire from the fire, from the fire department, what, 
how do you see this thing playing out? You I know? have a lot of fantasies. Do you? Oh, sure. Yeah. Name the top two best ones. <laughs> well, the top one is um, to uh, see about maybe getting a pilot's license and start flying around the country in a small plane, you know, and seeing, seeing the country that way. That's one of the top contenders right now. Um, and, of course, the one that trumps that one is I'm raising a family and uh, starting a family late in life, and uh, I'm looking forward to the experiences of, uh, of raising a family, and I have a lot of fantasies about where that's, you know, what that's gonna be like, so. Could you possibly have imagined that you would have had a life of the theater like the life you've had? No, never, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I didn't know that I, look, I was, I was out, I was done, you know, I was, I was on the fringes of what, we call society you know I was out there living in a car you know and, and running with a gang as a teenager and smoking dope and doing drugs and everything you know and uh, I didn't know that I would live to see tomorrow half the time you know I, I had probably I had a severe case of PTSD when it was all said and done you know um, so no I had no idea and again what you do know, you think drove you to that to the theater no to the trouble you were getting into Oh, I, look, you know, we're all different, right? And I like to think sometimes, you know, if we don't believe that we're all different, look at dogs and how dogs are different. It's easy to see how a dog is different, right? Well, I was the kind of dog when I was that age that you said sit to and just ran away. You know, I was a dog that ran out and got hit by a car. It was just your car. nature. I was a dog that ran out into a street and got hit by a car because I wouldn't listen. I was a dumb dog. And I'm not a dumb dog anymore. If you've never been to a Red Orchid Theater, I highly recommend you give it a go. That's a Red Orchid on Well Street in Chicago. That's our installment today of the Hog Butcher Radio Hour. My thanks to our guest, Guy Van Swearingen. And of course, as always, thanks to you for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.